Hi, this is Jim Martin with the Little Things First podcast. Today we're interviewing Ross Cooper, the author of Hacking Project-Based Learning. What is project-based learning? You're going to find out today from Mr. Cooper, who has uh, written extensively about the topic, who has practiced the topic as um, both a teacher and an administrator, and um, I think there's a lot of inspiration to be gleaned from his interview. So please enjoy, and hopefully it inspires you to set out on some project-based initiatives yourself. I think, you know, we always go back to, like, why we do what we do, and I think growing up, or I know that growing up, I learned a little bit differently than than uh, other students, you know, like, um, like, we see all those students in our classes right now, and we define, like, one way as being smart, you know, like, doing well on the test, multiple choice, open-ended, whatever it might be, and um, I was definitely one of those students who learned in a little bit more of a creative way. But as we know, uh, for better or for worse, a lot of our classrooms are more about what works for the teacher, not necessarily about the students. And I mean that in a nice way, but that does exist, right? Sure. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's more about teacher comfort than, you know, taking risks to meet students where they are. And, uh, you know, I was one of those students who didn't think I got the education that I, you know, kind of needed or deserved. And then um, when I, so I, you know, aspired to become an educator, kind of almost like with that chip on my shoulder, like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to do this better than you could. You know what I mean? Like that type of thing. Yeah. And so, and then, um, you know, we, we tend to teach the way that we would have wanted to have been taught. So, um, not too long into teaching, I started to ad- adopt more of like a project based approach, um, which was in line with, um, thankfully with, you know, what my district, my district was supporting at the time. And then as I became an administrator, um, I carry that with me um, into my, you know, instructional leadership. Very so. nice. And what um, what roles have you had in the school system, just for people's interest? So I was a uh, I was a fourth grade teacher, and I've been everything from an assistant principal to a K through twelve curriculum supervisor to an elementary principal. Now I'm actually an elementary assistant principal in the in New York, in Westchester, New York. Very nice. Yeah, you know this is a really good timing for me because I've been having uh, our our fall evaluation meetings with our provisional teachers who come to us so eager and so excited, right, to to help their kids and to change the world and to make connections and do the right thing, and they come into a system that has some expectations about the curriculum that you need to work on and you know the way that you're going to be teaching kids certain things and it ends up crowding out so much of project centered work and they feel frustrated, but they also are swimming in, uh, you know, the new math curriculum, the new reading curriculum. Um, and I'm curious, uh, either in your past or as a, as a current leader, how do you help, especially new teachers through that process? Yeah, so I think there's a couple things. I think I think you're exactly right. A lot of teachers come out of college or grad school ready to like set the world on fire, right? Right? They're ready to do all these like, great things. Um, they finally have their own classroom, and then I think not all the times, but a good amount of the time, um, they lose a little bit of that fire, you know, and and they feel maybe even like beaten down by the system, or I think maybe more specifically, they feel like they have to conform, um, and 
what I, what I've seen is, and I've had talks with like younger teachers, and what happens is, and this is a generalization. I don't want to say this happens everywhere, but I've seen this in more places than one where you know teachers are like you know they're out of college or grad school, they want to change the world, they're doing all these unique things, and they feel um, they feel the pressures to conform to what everybody else is doing for better or for worse, almost like as to not like upset the apple cart. Does that make sense? Right. Um, so, you know, I see that and, um, you know, the talks that I had with some of my younger teachers before I left the last job, I said to them, you know, if I were to come back five years ago and watch you do your thing, like you're, you're both on amazing trajectories right now and your teaching would be drastically different. Like you would continue to grow and grow and grow, um, rather than kind of just like look like everybody else. And you say that in a nice way, you know, like <laughs> not that, not that looking like everybody else is bad, but you don't want them to feel like they have to conform and be like everybody else. Um, and gravitate towards the middle. Um, so I think, I think that's one thing that I see is like these pressures to conform. And I think as an administ- as leaders and as administrators, um, we have to support those outliers and we have to support those people who have to do unique things. And I, I can't tell you how many times as an administrator I've had these talks with teachers who feel like, um, they're almost like under attack from their colleagues for being different. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and I, it's almost like you have to give them pep talks. And I've had teachers say to me, you know, even some of my, you know, some of my best teachers say, you know, um, that, that don't have reputations for getting along with, you know, people. And I say, that's great. You know, I say like, like that's, you know, that's good. But and it's like, first of all, you have to dig into why you're not getting along, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's because of your teaching style, then I'm like, that's great. Like keep doing what you believe in and I will support you. And I think that's one obstacle as far, and, and to answer your question more specifically about the curriculum, I think sometimes we send, um, we have to be careful about the messages that we're sending, you know, so, and, um, sometimes we say, Hey, we want you to innovate. We want you to do these great things. Um, but you also need to do this program, um, with fidelity or on this day, you have to be on this page. Um, and sometimes those messages come from building level itself. Sometimes they might come from central office. But I think we have to make sure that our expectations are really clear as to almost like not what the ceiling is, but what the floor is. Like, what are those minimum expectations? And that creates a safe place for people to experiment. And then also, like, more specifically drilling down and showing teachers, okay, like, here's how you can hit the standards and also do those, you know, student-driven learning experiences, um, you know, that, that promote, that promote relevant, authentic learning. So I think, I think it's like, you know, it, there's multiple facets to it. It's like the bigger picture of support. It's sending the right messages, making sure they're consistent, but also then drilling down to those explicit ways to connect the standards, uh, to student driven experiences. You know, I love that. And, and specifically when you said innovate and experiment is such an important, you know, message that we should be sending out because the truth is we're never really done with growing in education and getting better and finding, you know, the best way to reach our kids in front of us. And then we get a new batch too that have new challenges and new, new learning needs, right? But I'm, I'm thinking and reflecting on some of the districts that I've worked with recently, and I actually okay. don't think that we've had that um, that message very often about innovate and and experiment. It, it is a little more focused, and this, you know, this is always kind of a swinging pendulum, but I think it's more focused on, nope, here's, here's the pacing guide. You don't have to be exact, but this is really where you should be. This is kind of what you should be working on. Um, so in general, are, 
our podcast focuses on the little things that make a big difference. So I want to just honor that I think what you're talking about is a little thing that makes a really big difference for teachers is giving them permission to try to find the best way. Um, I'm curious about leadership that, you know, pressures around you. Uh, are they all pretty much in the same space? It's a pretty consistent expectation from the district for that innovation, or is that something really you as a leader have kind of helped bring into the building? I, I mean, I think, so I, I can't say that I'm responsible for it in my current job. Um, like I, I was brought into a district as an assistant principal where, you know, the principal had already been there for a year, but the district as a whole, um, it's Tappaqua Central School District in um, in Westchester, New York. It, it's, it's a very forward-thinking district. Um, there have been places where I've gone in, and it's like you know, and I've and I've definitely moved the needle where I am now. Like the move, the needle's already been moved, and it's continuing to move. Yeah. Um, but to your point, like you mentioned, like okay, like you have to follow the pacing guide, but you have some leeway. Like I think you said something like that, right? There's yeah. some leeway. Yeah. So I think I think like. And I've seen this in multiple places. It's like sometimes we think we're being clear and we're not. So if we're saying to teachers, like, like you have to follow the pacing guide, but you have some leeway, what does that leeway look yeah. like? You know what I mean? Like, or like you have to, you have to honor the integrity of the program. We might think we're being clear, but then teachers leave the meeting, like feeling anxious because they don't know what honoring the right. integrity of the program means. So I think like we have to really be careful about like what those I, I, you know, for lack of like guiding principles or minim minimum expectations, like what specifically are they? Because when we're being unclear, we create anxiety and people don't feel safe. So it's like, where, where, where are the non-negotiables? And then where's the, where's their wiggle room? And then now let's work within that wiggle room. And I think that as a building level, like nobody's more responsible for um, a school moving forward than building level administration, right? Mm -hmm. Like if the principal yeah. or principals don't get it, I don't think it's going to happen, right? So like if, if I'm if I'm a building level administrator and I think that there's an unclear message from somebody in my building or from somebody in central office, then it's my job to clarify that for my staff because ultimately I'm responsible for the instructional leadership and culture in my building. But I think that, that idea of clarity, like clarity precedes competence, right? Like we need to make sure that clarity is in place we know what that wiggle room is, and then we can move within that um, and then decide what to do moving forward. That uh, You've said it so well, and that clarity, you know, comes or precedes competence. I, I agree. Even if we provide some really amazing material, typically whatever curricular materials come to our schools, it has way more in it than you could ever get to and, and be able to teach, right, during your school year. So teachers still have some responsibilities, sort of pick and choose the pieces that need to be in place for their class. And I'm really excited about your project-based learning, sort of helping them with, I guess, balancing, right, that question that's before them. Uh, but I, I completely agree that we sometimes, um, either at the central office or in, even in the building, we're not quite as clear about what the expectations are um, so I'd, I'd love to hear more, you know, what are little things that you do to create that clarity? So you talked about opening it up so that there's innovation and experimentation. How do you create hmm. those boundaries? Yeah. So like, I'll give you a specific example. Um, so, so, um, and where I was a principal before in New Jersey, we rolled out, um, we rolled out writing workshop, uh, reading and writing workshop, which, um, is, I guess is now is probably, you know, it's definitely popular. It's more popular on the East Coast because of our proximity, you know, to Columbia University and, and uh, Lucy Calkins and all that. 
but I think it's becoming more popular across the country, I would think. Um, but teachers want to know, like, once again, like, like if you're, if we're a workshop school, what part of workshop do we have to do? Um, and where, once again, do we have the flexibility to make it our own? So what we did as a staff was, it's almost like you're defining these guidelines or you're defining these rules. And like you would with your student, the more people contribute to the, the creation of these rules or guidelines or guiding principles, the more ownership they're going to have over it, right? It's not going to feel like it's something that's done to them. Um, so, so as much as possible, we work together as a staff to define these guiding principles. So, um, so the focus, for instance, last year was uh, con- the conferring part of writing workshop. Or, or reading and writing workshop. Like, what does it look like when the students are engaged in independent work and you're walking around as a teacher and meeting with individual students and you're meeting with groups of students? And there's a whole lot of research behind it. There's tons of books written just on conferring. So as a principal, I can easily say to the teachers, okay, here are the non-negotiables of conferring. If I walk around and see you in your classroom, um, uh, you know, these are things that, these are kind of like the look-fors. So I could easily give those to my to my teachers. I'd probably be met with a whole bunch of pushback because um, it's kind of top down. Um, but if I involved, and what I did was I involved my staff in that process, and we probably got to the same place we would have gotten to if I did it myself. Um, but there was that ownership. So what did that process look like? Um, I said, you know, based on your experiences, because you want to honor the experiences, and based on uh, some research, like the work of, uh, the, the specific work we use was the work of Carl Anderson, who's, you know, grew when it comes to conferring during writing workshop, based on some of his work, and I gave, I gave them some of his work, based on um, your experiences, create what you think um, those guiding principles should be for conferring during writing workshop. Um, I will take everybody's, you know, so they worked in groups, not as grade level groups, but like mixed groups. So it wasn't all the grade levels working together. And this mm-hmm. was like half a day we spent on this. Um, they got me those guiding principles. I put them together. I created a document. I sent it out to them for feedback. And then once we finalized the document, um, I was clear that I'm not going to start using it for about another month because I wanted to give them time to wrap their head around it before we used it um, in a way that um, before we started using it. And it was used. And a lot of times, like we, I think we, uh, we uh, default to accountability and this, it was made clear that this is going to be as non-evaluative as possible. Yeah. So any feedback that I get, basically what we had at the end of the day was a bunch of learning targets. Like I'm doing this with my student, or actually written as much as possible in the form of student learning, not teaching, which is a big shift. Because it's more about what the students are doing and not so much what the teachers are doing. And then I gave them feedback continually that tied into those learning targets. And I encourage teachers to get into each other's rooms to give each other feedback as well. Um, and it was written feedback. So there was no like email sent out, no electronic trail, because we know when we give um, like digital feedback, it leaves like a paper trail, right? So yeah. if it's just pencil and paper, it's like it's less intrusive um, or, or le- it feels less evaluated. So like, I mean, that could be done with anything. So um, even, even in like our, um, the upcoming uh, project-based learning book that I'm co-authoring with Aaron Murphy, we talk about how we could use that same process to define almost these learning targets for uh, for project-based learning. Like, what do those look for? Like, how do you define project-based learning as, a, as an organization? And what are those look for whenever you're getting into a classroom? Um, and then we also emphasize the fact that we need to be careful about turning any practice into black and white because you could go through, a, you could like check the project-based learning boxes and say, okay, like it met the standards. I have an, I have an essential question. I assessed my students. I gave feedback, blah, 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 blah. You could like do all that and you could check all the boxes with, with 
project-based learning, or you could check all the boxes with a reading or writing workshop. Um, but you also have to see it. Like, you need more information. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, it also involves, like, getting into classrooms and looking at common assessments and things like that. But I think defining those guiding principles or that floor um, is a definite starting point. That's great. Um, Sorry, that was a lot. No, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, exactly like we're looking for because I think it's subtle. I think it's even just the simple statement you're making about it's not just checking the boxes, right? It's about relationships and working and being in classrooms and connecting with people. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like it's like almost like it comes down to defining what we're trying to do. I mean, I don't think. We, like, okay, like, we're, like, I can't tell you how many times people have brought me in to do project-based learning, and it's, like, if I were to ask, like, or even, like, if you think about, like, personalized learning or design thinking or any of those buzzwords out there, and I don't mean buzzwords in a negative way, but, like, um, like if you ask, like, 50 teachers in a room to define project-based learning, and you'll probably, you know, or even administrators, like, you'll probably get back, like, a whole wide array of definitions. So it's, like, how do you know that you've gotten there if you don't know what your end game is, you know? Um, And I I think that's it. So it's not just, it's not just like a simple definition, but it's also a definition that includes those look fors um, that you're looking for when we're in classrooms. So um, Ross, we're really interested. I had an opportunity to read your book and it's great and we want other people to be able to access it. So maybe Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about your book that you have out now. You also mentioned maybe an upcoming book that's um, being written. And also, um, how would you define for people project-based learning? Because Tracy and I went to um, an ed camp recently. We attended a session about project-based learning, knowing we were going to be talking to you. And... Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that I'm completely clear on, you know, what the difference is between project-based learning and other forms of cooperative learning. So I think maybe some of our listeners might have that very same question. In fact, sometimes he calls it problem-based learning. And so if that slips out, it's it's not intentional. We're just trying to get clarity. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I think, I think um, at its core, project-based learning is an inquiry-based unit, right? It's an instructional unit where students learn through investigation and exploration, right? Um, and I think, like, if I had to give, like, a simple, like, short-to-the-point definition, that would be it. Um, that's really what it is, an inquiry-based instructional unit. If you're familiar with the work of, like, like Grant Wiggins and Jay McKay, like, Understanding by Design, mm-hmm. um, like, it's, to me, it's like that, um, like, kind of ramped up a little bit with maybe more of an emphasis on performance tasks. And maybe more of an emphasis on authenticity and putting students at the center of the learning, but it, it really, to me, is just like a, a, a like a like a modern day instructional unit. And I think sometimes, um, like we dress it up so much and we make it feel like it's just like unobtainable thing. Um, like, hey, we've seen videos about it. We, you know, we, we've read all these articles, but then, like, what exactly is it, right? And to me, that's all it really is. I think if we were going to expand upon that definition. We could include like certain components, um, like um, like often, like I said, like um, like like an essential question that drives the learning, connecting to standards, students tackling an authentic problem, student reflection, student publishing. I think a big one is students working on their performance performance tasks um, throughout the unit, rather than saying, "Now that you've done the learning, here's the performance task." when you give them the performance task at the beginning of the unit or make them aware of it at the beginning of the unit, all those lessons that they're doing throughout the unit are being done so within the performance task, and therefore it's that much more valuable. 
right? So it's, it's the equivalent of saying, now that you've learned all this stuff, do something with it, or we're going to do something really cool, but before we do that, we're going to learn the necessary information we know we need to learn in order to make it happen, right? Uh, and that's really how the latter is how things function in the real world, right? right? Yeah. Then there's incentive to learn. Um, and if, if you make connections, um, the, way, the way Aaron and I have kind of like broken it down to make this abstract idea more concrete is we give like these three different tracks. One of them is a product track where students are all designing a product um, or products. Um, and that's like a nice like starting point, but that's different from like the old school project because there's flexibility in regard to like what that product looks like. So like one of the example we always give that's illustrated in the first book is the pinball machine project. Not all the pinball machines look the same. There were certain requirements that they had and certain constraints, but um, they all met the same learning goals for the most part, but all the machines looked entirely different. So that would be a product track. And then there's a problem, which is what you're saying, like problem-based learning. And that, right, even that issue right there, what's the difference, um, could cause issues with educators. But I really look at problem-based learning as just kind of almost as a subset of project-based learning. Like students are tackling an inquiry-based unit through a problem that either they either find on their own or one that's given to them. Um, by the teacher. And sometimes it's kind of like a fake made up problem, um, like a fake scenario, or other times it's something real that exists in the real world that we want them to actually tackle. And then there's something that's a little bit more open-ended, which is kind of like, here's the learning I want you to demonstrate. Um, now you decide how to get there. And that's not necessarily genius hour. Genius hour is when students decide on their own standards and their own learning goals. Here we're still defining the learning goals for students. Um, but there's complete flexibility for the most part regarding how um, they get to those learning goals. So that's great. Um, but that, that, that's how I look at it. Yeah. So that's how I look at it at its core. Um, but I think as a district, it's important to have that like short definition, like how do we define it? Now, what are we saying as a district are the components? Like anytime um, somebody in our, you know, at our elementary school creates a PBL unit here are the components we're looking for. And I have found that like planning with those certain components in mind, um, you know, you do a project at the beginning of the year, the next year, uh, I'm sorry, the next project you do, you build on top of that. So there's like, the, the, like you're not starting from scratch. There's like, there's these commonalities that create a comfort level for you, um, your students as well. And also um, it creates common language when you collaborate with colleagues across your school or your district. Um, so that's the whole definition thing and how I would define it. If um, When you look at the first book that came out, I think it was December 2016. Um, I think that's when it came out. And that's basically, we took the whole PBL process, and it's a short book, um, but we tried, to, um, we tried to take it without dumbing down PBL, but um, portray it in a way that's as simple as possible. Like ten, We call it like 10 easy steps or hacks. That, um, that educators could use to make PBL a reality in their classroom or schools. So I think it starts with like creating that culture. And I think, and I think the last chapter ends with like student publishing and reflection. But of course, it's, there's no way to, um, communicate the PBL process in a way that's entirely linear. But we made it like as linear as possible. Um, so that was December 2016. So there's a chapter on essential questions. There's a chapter on feedback. Like I said, student publishing and reflection, how to connect it to the standards. And then our new one, which is coming out um, probably like April or May of next year, is as we, um, since the last book came out, as a result of all the consulting work we've done, all the questions that we've gotten, we created a new book. And every 
chapter, I think right now there's about like 12 or 13 chapters, are driven by one of those big questions um, that people have as it relates to project-based learning. So um, there's a question about how do I build a PBL culture? There's a question about how do I control the chaos? Um, what is even like, what is inquiry based learning? What, um, how do I lead pro the whole, the last chapter is how do I lead it? So it's written specifically for leaders. Like, how do I make this reality in my organization? But all these like glaring questions, how do I grade it? If I don't give grades then how do I assess it? And that book is actually going to be about three times as big as the first one. It's really like kind of our most current and up to date thoughts on PBL. That's, that's terrific. I'm, I'll look forward to that for sure. Um, we're, um, getting towards the end of our time together. And we just wanted to um, ask you, what do you see as the benefit of uh, PBL in a school? You talked a little bit about it earlier, but what have you seen happen as a result of classrooms or schools that have invested in this as something important as a priority? Yeah, I think, I think, so I'll give you like a couple different lenses um, from the administrator lens. Like how many times have we told teachers like their teaching needs to be more progressive or they need to get away from worksheets or right? Like all that stuff, like as an administrator, as an instructional coach. And a lot of times we, we want people to move in that direction, but we don't necessarily have a way how project based learning gives us that. How does that make sense? Like, yes. it's, you know, so it's, you know, so rather than, and I think a lot of times we, we see these practices that we don't appreciate and it's easy to revert to eye rolling. Oh, this teacher is so traditional. This teacher, blah blah blah. And it's like, no. This, okay, here are explicit ways how to move forward. And I think that um, from an administrator lens, that's helpful. I think from a teacher lens, it helps you to move forward. But it's also you're planning more holistically. So rather than driving to school every day thinking like, what am I going to plan? What am I going to plan? What am I doing today? You spend the majority of your time planning like every whatever you know how long a unit is, maybe like four, six, or eight weeks. You put in the work beforehand, and then the day-to-day -day teaching is that much easier because you're just continuing with the unit, and you're spending the majority of your time um, being responsive and meeting the individual needs of your students. So I have thought that planning, that, that long-term planning um, is actually easier and more effective. You're working smarter, uh, not necessarily harder. And from a student's, I mean, from a student's point of view, it's everything, right? I mean, there's... There's growing statistics that, you know, students are bored at school, students aren't engaged, the classrooms are, more, like I said at the beginning, the classrooms are more about the teacher, um, and a lot of it is the difference between relevance and engagement. I know I spent a lot of time as a teacher, you know, I made plenty of mistakes then, I, make, I still make plenty of mistakes now as an administrator, but trying to get students excited about my interests, which I think is engagement, whereas there's this ideal of relevance and then empowerment, which is giving students opportunities to explore their own interests. And I think um, project-based learning is a way to make that happen. And, you know, I just had this talk with a teacher the other day. When we're planning short-term, it's almost like you must demonstrate this learning this way by, like, tomorrow. And when that destination's, like, just around the corner, there's not a lot of flexibility in regard to uh, regarding how students show their learning, right? But if the destination is, like, and those learning goals and the students have time to reach them, whether three, four, six weeks, there's flexibility um, regarding how we get there, you know, so the students could take those learning detours, they can make it their own, they could explore their own passions and interests. So um, in that respect for students, I mean, there's so many ways that benefit students, just, you know, just getting them excited about school, um, you know, is, you know, is, is just at its basic level what it's all about. Sure. Um, but I think I think it's just about meeting them where they are because I think 
even with technology nowadays, you know, if, if we're not giving students, um, you know, the education they deserve, they're going to find it outside of school time. And we hear that a lot about these students who do these wonderful things, not because of school, but in spite of school. Yeah. And we want those great things taking place within our, within our, you know, within our organizations. Yeah. Um, not saying play, play the game of school and go home and, and, you know, do the real learning. You're so right. And, and in fact, I think, uh, because we're running out of time, we won't really get into all the questions we have. So with your permission, we're going to be calling you after that second book comes out. Because I have so many more questions, too, about vertical alignment and how are you going to assess, you know, uh, student learning and how do you use some of our template-based, I guess, uh, you know, evaluation tools for teachers, all of that okay. that we want to lay across it because I think that there's just so much. And people are eager to do this work because... They see that we are still in that factory mindset, and we need to get into a place where we're engaging learners. Um, but here's one last question for you. Mm-hmm. If you could talk to your younger self, you know, have a time machine, and you could just, you know, zoom back and have like a do-over, what would you, what would you do differently? Or what would you tell your younger self if you had that opportunity now that you've been in the business for a while? What would you have done differently? How, how young am I? <laughs> what, what's the age of my younger self? Uh, let's say a couple of minutes, two, three minutes. No, 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 no. How, how, how young? How young? You, That's you, what I meant. Well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, you know, like when you're first becoming a teacher. So talking about yourself as the as a younger, you know, educator. Oh, that, that's a good question. So I think, you know, I think sometimes, not, and, and I'm, I'm always careful about making generalizations, but this happened to me, and the, with a progressive attitude, like I, I'm very progressive, uh, and you know, which isn't necessarily a good or bad thing. Sometimes I think we wear progressive as a badge of honor, and we shouldn't. But I am very progressive, and I think sometimes with being progressive comes arrogance, and it's like almost like looking down upon all these other practices and thinking, oh, like these teachers, these other teachers aren't doing what's best by the kids, and they know it, and they don't care. And it's like, just because, you know, I'm in a certain space with my learning or I believe in technology integration and I believe in project-based learning, um, doesn't make other educators bad if their style is a little bit different. So I think it comes down to less arrogance and being more respectful of other teacher styles. Because if we want people to, you know, buy into what we're doing, we have to listen and not just listen, but also hear uh, what they're bringing to the table and even if we agree, disagree with like 95% of what they're doing, um, we could latch onto the 5% that we, that we can learn from and make it our own and, and, and make those people feel good about the work and make them feel heard. And in turn, they're more likely to listen to us. But that ha- I think that happens a lot where progressive educators, because it happened to me, get, get upset that other people don't believe in their teaching style or they look down upon them because they're so different. And sometimes it's that, but sometimes I also think it's arrogance and this whole idea that you just don't get it. You don't go to ed camps. You don't do Twitter chats. Um, I'm better than you. And I think there's a fine line between being progressive um, and being arrogant and thinking what we're doing is better than everybody else. So that, that's what I would tell my younger self. Like, do what you believe in, but also be respectful of what everybody else is doing as well. Yeah, because we really are all in this together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you have to assume, especially like as, a, as an administrator, that everybody has the best intentions in mind until, it, until it's clear. And, and I think 99.9% of people do. Um, 
you know, for, you know, and some people, and you don't know what people are going through in their professional and personal lives either, right? That's a big part of it. Um, But it's just assuming the best. It's assuming the best and, and being less judgmental and arrogant. Well, thank you. Good advice for all of us. We so appreciate your coming in and spending some time with us. I'm sure there are a thousand things you could have been doing, and we are so <laughs> grateful that you helped us get a little more clarity. And again, uh, we're keeping our eye out for the new book. Do you want to tell us? Do you know, is it finalized what the title is? So we're, we're, it's funny because I'm still going back and forth with the publisher. I can tell you where we are now. It's the, the, the tentative title is like Project-Based Learning, Real Questions, Real Answers. But because, you know, because like I said, every, every chapter is based on a question. Yeah. And it actually, the first, the first chapter is why project-based learning, um, which is the last question that you asked me. is like, why are we doing this in the first place, yeah. right? Yeah. The whole idea of Simon Sinek, start with the why. Um, but um, that's the tentative title, like something about questions and answers. Yeah. Um, same publisher as before, Mark Barnes and Times 10 Publishing. Um, and like I said, April, May, the first draft is done. Um, and we're looking to probably refine it over the next couple months or so and then start marketing it maybe around like February. Love it. We're looking forward to it. Very nice. Awesome. And uh, everybody should get your current book, which is Hacking Project-Based Learning. And um, it has a lot of really uh, valuable information in there for the little things you can do to get started with uh, PBL in your classroom. So thank you so much, Ross, for uh, talking with us and have a wonderful rest of your day. Awesome. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.